and we saw the other sheds coming down towards us and they were signed. And us being 75%, I said, yeah, I think we're going to make a stand. It is the dream of any union to have solidarity between disputes. And I tell them, bro, I was in Auckland and everybody knows us. For us, the strategy was in our hands. It wasn't all the plants versus talents. It was one little town. That's why it's so devastating, the story, really. They got 10 million to get rid of me and you. <laughs> and we're still here. This is a company that is ideologically opposed to unions and has destroyed unions from their seafood part of their business many, many years ago. They said, sign us or bugger off. So we bugger off. <laughs> so you guys just didn't have any idea what was coming? No. In 2010, Tallies became the majority shareholder of the AFCO Meatworks. The same year, they told the unionised workforce of meat workers in its wider of freezing works in Hawke's Bay to sign individual employment agreements rather than negotiate another union collective. The workers refused and were locked out of their work for the season as Tallies closed the plant. Over the next five years, this happened twice more and the workers in Wairua lived without pay for three years. In 2012, Tallies took the fight to every one of its AFCO plants in the country. The dispute is long, complex and heart-wrenching, and we're telling it in three parts, with episodes released daily. This is a story of capitalism's excesses, of an unbroken culture of staunch trade unionism, of a small town trying to take on one of New Zealand's richest families, and of a group of workers who stood up for working people in Aotearoa, New Zealand. My name is Peter Ramato. I started back in 1996, 97. Around that time was the period I started working there. I, I've been working there for about 24 years prior to me finishing this year. I tried to speak to a few other people involved at Wairoa. Some said it was still too raw and didn't feel comfortable, and some still worked there and contractually weren't allowed. So Peter is going to be our guide. The Meatworks was actually a very awesome place to work. Uh, when I started, it was compulsory to be a union person. You could not join the meat industry without being part of the union back then, which was a good thing because we had a lot. Of, they had a lot of things going for us, like our super scheme. If you put in. $30 a week for your super, the company would match it. So you'd have 60, yeah, well. after X amount of years, a lot of workers actually finished quite young and, and had a big super on the end of it. If you got hurt or if you got really sick, the company would actually give you time and say, yeah, 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 come back when you're ready. Now, if you would do that, so these days they would fire you. They would fire you, you wouldn't have an argument, that's you, you're gone. So if you had a heart condition, if you had struggled, the company would not, the company never would wait till you get back. You could be one, two, three, three years. And then you go, yeah, 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 come back. You know? And that's the beauty of them. They recognised the family that we had and looked after it. Nurtured it, and they got the best out of everybody. Key to understanding the story of Wairoa is the history of the Meat Workers Union, the freezing works, and New Zealand's political economy more broadly, which has been completely transformed over the last 40 years. 
Here's Ross Webb, an historian whose brilliant thesis was about the history of the Meat Workers Union. Ross also went to Wairoa to cover the dispute and interviewed many people involved. I'll link to his fantastic lecture and articles in the show notes. You know, the mid 20th century New Zealand economy was one that was fundamentally shaped by the twin crises of the Great Depression and the Second World War. And it was out of those, that crisis and, and the election of the first Labour government in 1935, that it was the creation of what historians uh, call the post-war settlement. Security, stability, a kind of class compromise with capital accepting a role for unions and in collective bargaining, and Labour basically accepting capitalism as the economic system. We can look, on, look back on it nostalgically, but it also had a lot of limitations. It was always focused around the ideal of the male breadwinner wage. You know, while Māori were included in the post-war settlement, it was only really insofar as Māori would assimilate or integrate into Pākehā life. And so the establishment really of an arbitration system, a system designed to centralise wage bargaining, ensure a living wage, but also to suppress strike action. So it encouraged the, the creation of unions which would you know, register with the state and then bargain in a forum kind of overseen by a state conciliator. And the deals reached were called awards. But there were a lot of unions like the freezing workers who always kind of bristled against the limits of the system, you know, who through their own industrial strength were able to gain concessions beyond what the system could provide and resented the fact that, that the system didn't allow strikes, didn't allow direct negotiations with employers. And there was over time, you know, a gradual kind of acceptance of direct collective negotiations with employers, even though strikes were illegal. The Department of Labor basically had a policy of not pr prosecuting after the 50s. In the 80 years since refrigerated ships came into being, New Zealand has become the world's greatest exporter of meat and dairy produce. It's 49 million sheep and six and a half million cattle provide 90% of its overseas earnings. For much of the 20th century, meat workers occupied an important place in, in the New Zealand economy for that reason. A meat plant was a familiar landmark all across the country. It provided employment for entire communities and generations of families. It'd be like if you were to go and work with your uncle, and all your uncles go, come here, boy, and they'd always cook up, you know, they share their food, they share their food, and they'll talk about, they know, but say some of the dumbest shit about your aunties and all that. You know, it was just a beautiful thing, you know. Um, and then, like, once you finish your feed and you have to have these jokes while you're eating, you'll be working on it, and they'll still be yelling these jokes at you, no matter where you're working. So it was, a, it was like having a party without alcohol, but you're working. You know what I mean? You'd have your music going, you'd be working hard, you'd be having fun with everybody on the chain. Um, your days would be happy because everybody was just having so much fun. You look forward to going to work. New Zealand's arbitration system then institutionalised and attempted to incorporate the labour movement into the state and to blunt the power of organised labour and prevent strikes. And slaughtermen were among the first to kind of break that um, system. In the early days, it was the slaughtermen who organized the first unions. In 1937, 
the Labour government introduces a 40-hour working week, the new award for freezing workers retains the 44-hour working week without any pay rises, and in response, freezing workers in Auckland adopt a ghost law. After threatened dismissal, they occupy the factory. So even in those early years of the first Labour government, they were showing their industrial militancy and independence. And it was to the meat industry that much of the credit must go for helping the country back on the road to recovery. It was during 1958 to 59 that the income from meat exports surpassed wool sales and became New Zealand's most important asset. Between the 1930s and, and 60s, freezing workers always kind of maintained a, a militant and, and independent culture and, and bargained aggressively on the job. And this kind of came out of this, the maintenance of a well-developed structure of regional and official site delegates, which ensured the expression of workplace views, and it off offered membership participation in the union. If there was any disputes or anything, you'd just go back to the core collective and would be sorted that way. Which was rare. It was rare for us to have any any arguments or anything with, with the company then. We would sit down amicably and have it sorted pretty fast. We would sit down like adults and, and we'd be okay. There was also a kind of informal culture. The chain system meant that hundreds of workers worked alongside each other. They spoke all day. When you're working with other workers, with the older fellows, they would talk union stuff. And that's how we would pick up being a unionist. They would say, you know, we need to do this better. We need to implement this so we can get this guy some more money. Or we need to do this so that's better on that worker over there. Then you start noticing the things on plant, things that you could do better that was for the better of those workers and actually better for the company. We used to think that way too. And the national government under Robert Muldoon was, was from 1975 to 84. Ruth Richardson, who was the advocate for Federated Farmers at the time, before she became a national MP, successfully lobbied for the deregulation of the meat industry. And that meant meat plant closures, and that, that deregulation of the meat industry and all the impacts really became the subject of a number of disputes from the early 80s. But the town of just under 2,000 people rallied to fight for the freezing works. Politicians lobbied, government support and feasibility studies were requested, and the Partia women set up a support group for distressed families. But when the final whistle blew in September, there was no firm offer for a takeover, and the freezing workers went home for the last time. But of course, you know, the, the radical changes really come after 1984, with the election of the fourth Labour government. It's kind of rapid and unprecedented program of deregulation and restructuring really started to bite in the economy and it introduced pressures that made the marginalization of the trade union movement and, and the meat the workers union all but inevitable in the years ahead and all of this had a really direct impact on the meat processing industry you know between 86 and 1990 the freezing work industry was stood somewhere at 31,000 and that was that was cut in half during those years the meeting brought a curtain down on more than 70 years of Whakatū Works history. Meat workers have committed suicide or suffered mental illnesses following the closure of the Whakatū Meat Works. There's still debate ago. over the reasons for the closure of the lamb and sheep chains at the Westfield Staff Freezing Works. laid off from the Weddell Tomoana plant in Hastings in August could be even worse. Other works have closed down completely in South Auckland over the past six years. That's seen a total of about 5,500 people laid off from the freezing industry in Auckland. 
So for those who retained their jobs, companies really went after working conditions, went after that kind of long tradition of autonomy on the job. Because Māori are such a high proportion of the workforce, Māori hit hard. The unemployment rate for, for Māori in 1986 is, is somewhere near 25% compared with the unemployment rate of, of about 9-10% for non-Māori. Freezing works were scattered around the whole country, but the predominance of Māori workers was really something that everybody interviewed talked about a lot. It was for a lot of Pākehā workers their introduction to Māoridom. Hape Huata, you know, even said that when Pākehā come into the freezing works, they become Māori, which was, an, you know, an interesting kind of statement. We were all the same, actually. We were all on the same page. We were all meat workers. So straight away, the authenticity is out the window, if I'll be honest. We were just about being the workers, doing as good as we could, because we, at that point in time, we were getting paid well. So we worked hard, we did our thing, and, and we went home. Um, the old boys looked after everybody. Uh, when I, so when I got older, I started doing the same thing. I started looking after everybody under my umbrella seat. That was really the overwhelming theme for people that I interviewed. Whether it was freezing workers recalling the 1970s or, you know, people who worked at White or AFCO in 2010, the idea of this kind of culture of camaraderie and, and whanaunatanga or whakawhanaunatanga. And as I say, you know, workers were, were militant but never radical. It was a union culture that reflected a desire for control over the job. They were pretty militant. They were staunch, would be the term I would use. They were staunch to the end. They were like the old soldiers. They knew what they wanted and they stuck to that. But there were um, exceptions, you know, the cases of, of activism that reflected national concerns. So in 1978, Ngāti or Orake are evicted from Bastion Point at Takaparafo in Auckland and Wellington freezing workers uh, walk off the job in protest. In, in 1981, Hawke's Bay freezing workers uh, walk off the job on the news that Bob Marley has passed away. You know, one person I interviewed told me about a, a wildcat strike after a foreman called a Māori freezing worker a black bastard. You know, so that kind of solidarity at a workplace level as well, you know, is quite impressive. But there were, um, it was, it's often militancy and in, in, in reaction to threats to control over the job, to paying conditions, rather than a kind of sense of national consciousness. I didn't, back then I wouldn't say it was a political movement back then. I think when we started, when things started getting rough, that's when it, we started recognising the political side of a union. You don't realise your your substance or, or where you're standing in this, in, within your union until you have a fight, until you have an argument. That's when you realise, oh shit, I'm in it. You know, um, other than that, no, you have no idea. You have no idea until you have a fight. So to Wairua then, a small town, a couple of hours toward the coast from Te Urawera, and an hour and a half north of Napier on a slow, winding road. As you drive into Wairua, the suburbs and, and the kind of shops along Marine, Marine Parade and over the river is the meatworks and it kind of dominates the town. It's one of the few major employers during the season, money kind of flushes into the town and runs out when the season's um, over. That's why it's so devastating the story really because it's, it's been a place that has employed so many people for so long and is such a central side of the community. In 2010, Tally's finally bought out AFCO fully, having spent the last decade 
gradually increasing their stake. They were now fully in control of several freezing works across Aotearoa, New Zealand. The Kellys are an agribusiness giant. I mean, they have a vast business empire as far as things go in New Zealand. It includes fishing, vegetable production, dairy, and you know, more recently, the meat industry. I don't know a lot about the Tellys, and that's you know partially by design. It's a secretive private family. It's hostile to criticism, and you know the latest National Business Review Rich List claimed that their net worth was one point two billion dollars. And the Tellys have twice taken the NBR to the Privacy Commissioner, and then the Complaints Review Tribunal to remove them from the Rich List. I mean that's how secretive they are. They don't even want to be included in the Rich List. We heard it at one of our meetings. They would give us the heads up of what's coming. And we knew that Tallis was coming. And we didn't know whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. AFCO was actually the number one plants in New Zealand. It was the biggest thing before Tallis had bought it. We had number one on our plant because it was the number one, yeah, this one in Warren was the number one plant in the country. And I think that's what made it attractive to Tallis. They show up in court rulings once in a while. They develop a reputation for anti-unionism in the 1990s. There's amazing descriptions from the judge in those court records, and I've got a quote here, which is the judge during its ruling basically says that, uh, quote, Mr. Telly made no secret of his feelings towards the union. It is a deep-seated animosity, the source of which is now untraceable. He set out through his share of control of management to punish the plaintiff union, and he set out to do so by injuring it financially. Tally's a, a really good company. I recommend them to anyone. I've been working just over 30 years for this group. The reality is it's a great company environment and I think it's all about being part of something that you can feel is moving forward. It's family orientated as well and it's New Zealand owned so it's fantastic. They really push you to progress and encourage you. They're great to work for. Ever since I started, they've done heaps to help me. They see you work hard and, it, yeah, they reward you for it. And their attempt to influence politics has also been detailed elsewhere. You know, Nikki Hager in The Hollow Men revealed, you know, that the tallies were lobbying Don Brash, then leader of the National Party, to basically focus on race-baiting issues. This is a company that employs predominantly Māori workers. We knew that they were... Um the major shareholders, and, and in all honesty, we didn't know what we were in for. And we weren't worried about it because, hey, we were still number one plant. We still had our family structure, so we were good. Mm. And we didn't care who, who owned it. We didn't care. And it would almost sound like paranoia. You know, if you were sitting there and I was saying, hey, we've got these fellas here. They're going to lock you out. They're going to do this. They're gonna, we need to fight. You know, like, <laughs> it sounds paranoid, eh? And that's what it would sound like to you. And I was like, oh, man, this guy's a bit paranoid. <laughs> you know, let's give it a chance. So you guys just didn't have any idea of what was coming? No. In the post-war years, the big problem for freezing workers was the question of working in a seasonal industry. The problem of security of employment became the key issue for unions in the post-war period. It resulted in discriminatory and preferential hiring and firing by employers between the season. So in response, unions sought to control the labour supply by introducing rules of seniority. Seniority gave workers who had previously been employed the right to work at the beginning of the next season and the guarantee of being laid off last at the end of the season. 
in 2010, management at Wairoa, and again, the, the dispute really starts at Wairoa, uh, threatened workers with a seasonal closure unless they were prepared to work harder for no more money or at least for not being paid um, overtime. And the company does its kind of classic thing. It bypasses the union, sends letters to all individual workers who are required to respond in person to private meetings with, with company individuals. There, the companies offer individual employment agreements to workers and effectively asking them to sever ties with their union. There was nothing wrong with our collective. We knew that our collective was up and it was the only thing that gave us some stu- substance. You know, because if, if they could say, no, no, we want this and we want it right now and you don't have a collective, guess what, they're doing it. Mm. You know, and that's what they were trying to force on us. No, we want more. But what they wanted was more for less money and more time. So the individual employment agreements, you know, as opposed to the union negotiated collective agreement, was a way of undercutting the power of the union and, and decreasing its membership, sapping its resources, but also attacking the long fought and important condition of seniority. And that's really a key point here, is that seniority is seen as a as imposition on the manager's prerogative in terms of who they hire and fire, basically. And because we don't have an agreement, if you sign these individual agreements, then you can start. And on top of that, the company offers a bonus of $1,000. And, you know, workers in Wairoa reject both the IEA and the offer of working harder for no, no more money. And the, the, the next day, the works close for the season. The company calls it a seasonal closure you know, the, the result of a lack of stock. But workers in the town could see what was happening. What they did was they held back all the stock. And they actually threw us a barbecue. And they said, we can start just on those, we can start. Right, we had the barbecue. And then we said no. <laughs> because, hey, we, I, like, I, at this point, I started recognising some of the strategies that they were starting to do. You know, they tried to um, starve us out. This was not a lockout of such. This was a deliberate attack. So Pete and his colleagues in Wairoa wanted to keep working, but they wanted to maintain their collective agreement with the structure and pay and seniority that that brought, rather than go on to the individual employment agreements, the IEAs. They wanted to negotiate and bargain with the company as they had done for years. But Tally said no and shut them out of the plant. It was a lockout. While the union still was present and while there was still an organisation and a presence of the union, a lot of those workers had entered during the 90s and they hadn't actually experienced the strike. A lot of the union must, Japan's were staunch union. That's it, you know, we're going to live die a union. You had your other ones who said, oh, bro, this guy's going to steal my job. There was, um, there was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of panic, a lot of scare and a lot of people. A lot, the whole plant was scared. You know, they're like, oh, what about a house? What about a bills? That was pushed to the forefront. And then a lot of us others were like, well, no, fuck it. And they, they come through too, because it was like, no, 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 you just can't come rolling up in here and ruining this structure. Because a lot of us were union, we're used to this structure. Mm. What they were asking is we take this structure away and we do whatever we want to, which is. Mm. <clears throat> and um, that's when the fight was. You know, strategy is about formulating a, a way to exert as much power and influence with limited resources. You know, how do you win a dispute? How do you win over the public debate? How do you convince a company or a state to 
back down or to change or to institute policy? How do you organize in a way that mobilizes and enthuses people that are involved to stick with the campaign? If I'll be honest, I don't think they had strategy. At first, I would listen to them. I was just watching all the dumb things they were doing and I thought they were doing it all wrong. I can't get any more honest because you've got to remember we, our union hadn't had a fight. Our union didn't know what a fight looked like, let alone the people on the plant that didn't know what a fight looked like. So I'm sitting at one of the meetings listening to them and I'm thinking, man, that's real dumb. What are you fellas doing? <laughs> and all these things was, were implemented around um, we need to get a council. We need to get the support of the, of the local people. We need to get support of international blah, blah, blah. We need to get media. And I was like, that's going to come. We are the locals. Everybody has somebody who works in the meat industry. So we obviously we got that support. The tension between the National Union, the Meat Workers Union, and the workers at Wairua was really a, a tension of strategy and how to use those resources. Lockouts cost a lot of money for workers and their supporters. It's very expensive and, and it's a difficult strategy. But battling in the courts also costs a lot of money. So, I mean, the union and... and those workers at Wairua were debating that. They were fighting over where to put that money, really. You know, should it go towards battling in the courts and winning in the courts, or should it be a grassroots local campaign to fight a lockout? So Tallies had partially locked out the Wairua meat workers. Pete, who worked in the beef house and was a union man, wasn't one of those locked out. So for workers like him, who were allowed back into work, they were faced with a brutal choice. Go back to work, maintain your income, but leave your locked out union colleagues to protest or to strike with them, forgo your wages and try and put pressure on the company by shutting down the whole plant. They started on the beef side. What they had done, they locked out half of our people and there was another way of fracturing the union. Some have to work, some don't. And you're going to have this infighting about, hey, hey, you're, we're a union, blah, blah. You, so that actually was the first and it was an ugly one too. So the mutton was okay. So they left the mutton on. You know, the beef house was, at that particular time, was the hardest. When you'd never crack it, they never cracked us in the, in the beef. They cracked a few, but they never cracked it. So um, we had a meeting. <clears throat> they said, hey, the, the beef are taking a hammer. And I remember hearing some of the mutton go, hey, we don't want to do that. You know, we're, we're like, they were okay. And then I was like, well, they're not going to be okay soon enough. You know, it's got to come through us, and then it's obviously it's going to filter down to you. So um, when we all went out, the beef was the one that locked it all down. Pete and his colleagues decided to strike. An act of solidarity, because crossing the picket line of their locked-out colleagues was an absolute can't-do. It puts the pressure onto Tallies, who either closed the plant or run it with a tiny fraction of non-unionized workforce, presumably running at a massive loss. You know, workers basically rallied to to set up resource centers and, and support themselves during the, that time. So I think there was just a local response to it, which was we need to organize uh, and collect money and collect food and basically ride this thing out. I don't think that there was a real sense of a crisis coming, but I think... It was definitely, it was hard for people. It was hard because people were going without pay and not everyone wanted to strike. People will show up in 2010 at, 
that we were with meat and it was getting ugly. It was getting ugly on the bridge because uh, there was a division in the, in the town. You know, we had mates who went back in and they drove past us on the bridge and then you'd hear the verbal abuse. You know what I mean? And this was, I was saying, this is not a good strategy. We're not getting the town on our side. They're yelling abuse at us. You know, we're yelling it back. Mm -hmm. Well, I wasn't. My mates were yelling that abuse. But I could recognise it. And I was like, bro, we need to get them off the, the, the bridge. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, because it's detrimental to where we want to get to. Mm -hmm. Hey, it's not um, it's not your family, bro. It's this company. This, this company is, is what started. They're just trying to get money. A lot of management at that particular time embraced that their role of being the villain, and they were. They loved it. And they lived in the town. And they lived in this town, yeah. <clears throat> One was was a production manager, and John John, who's a staunch union dude, and he'd be calling his uncle up, fucking, you know, and I'd get into, and he'd get into him. Another one was his own brother, was a union man, and he told him, no, you bloody think this whole, you know, when somebody would die. Mm -hmm. He told him, no, you get in this whole. You, you might be somebody, but you're nothing in the family. So, you, so it actually went filtered right down to your family. <laughs> the long, long history of trade unionism in the meatworks was a key resource in a very practical way too for those in Wairua. Because without pay, they needed money to survive. The older meatworkers had a thing called the picnic fund. <laughs> and the picnic fund was in case of a strike. So all these old fellas had put two and a half K away in case there was a strike. And a lot of these fellas had gone or passed away, but this money was still there. Wow. So we accessed the money to help us, you know, live over these times. And the company didn't, well, the company was like, ah, oh, they're going to be broken, they're going to crawl back. No, we didn't. I don't think anybody would have uh, predicted that it would have a huge um, impact on the town. I don't think anybody thought that Wairoa was going to be, you know, a political battleground over employment legislation. The season continues at Wairoa. While workers are continuing to work, the seasons are continuing. It's the Meat Workers Union itself that is starting to fight battles in the courts, really, the employment court, over questions of access to work sites. And that's what really leads to the 2012 lockout, is stalled negotiations, negotiations of access. That's all for part one. Tomorrow, we look at the dispute that tallies reignite in 2012 as every AFCO plant in New Zealand is locked out. When the lockout first started, there was a lot of confusion about what was happening. And there was a real fight here. Our union was, to me, they were ill-prepared, but who could be prepared for this? This was families who were having really basic rights that all New Zealanders take for granted ripped away from them. Then I said, what are we doing on our bridge for anyway? No, what do you mean? No, tallies can't see us yet. They can't see this, this shit.